Our first scripture reading for this morning is from the 89th Psalm, um, found on page 516 of the Old Testament in the Pew Bible. Uh, it'll be uh, verses 1 through 4, and then we will skip ahead to verses 15 through 18. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. Happy are the people who know the festal shout who walk, O Lord, in light of your countenance. They exult in your name all day long and extol in your righteousness. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Our epistle lesson this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. What then should we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you who were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become enslaved to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So what fruit did you then gain from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the fruit you have leads to sanctification and ends in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer on this humid morning. Beyond the words, let us hear your voice. Beyond the sound, let us be grasped by your intent, by your spirit. Speak to us so we may know your will 
and find in that knowledge the courage to do it in Christ's name. Amen. Dr. Richard Hamming, Richard Hamming, was born in Chicago in 1915. He attended the University of Chicago as an undergraduate and showed promise in mathematics, graduating in 1937. He then received a master's degree from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and returned to Illinois to complete his Ph.D. in mathematics from the University of Illinois in Champaign in 1942. Impressed with his research, some of his former University of Chicago professors believed him to be a great candidate to work on the top-secret project in Los Alamos. And so off he went to New Mexico to work on the Manhattan Project. He was responsible for programming the new massive IBM computing machine that did all of the calculations for the project's physicists. When the Manhattan Project concluded, one might say it ended with a bang, sorry, he was immediately hired by Bell Labs. The port of Bell Labs, where he arrived in 1946, was to create a space of research and development where you could pull together the brightest minds in mathematics and science and turn their genius loose to pursue whatever inspired their minds. It was the free and open pursuit of knowledge that resulted in no less than four Turing Prizes from Bell Labs for computer analysis and understanding, and nine Nobel Prizes in physics, and one in chemistry. Well, that doesn't match the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. It's still pretty impressive. Dr. Hamming was there at Bell Labs for about 40 years before he retired, and his expertise in computing made him a colleague of physicists and chemists and engineers who needed his ability to program computing machines to be able to do their research. And so he had the opportunity to work with some of the most amazing minds of post-World War II scientific America. After his retirement, he went on to work at the Navy Graduate School in Monterey, California, where he held a lectureship position, and in 1986, he delivered a lecture to the incoming engineering students called You and Your Research. You and Your Research. It was a summary of what he had learned over the decades of working with successful scientists. Working with hundreds of great minds, all of whom were given maximum freedom in these great research laboratories, with almost limitless resources, Hamming reflected on why it was that some scientists went on to greatness and others died in obscurity. What was the difference? Hamming wondered. Certainly, he admits, there is a certain amount of luck. Just being noticed, having opportunities, that was a factor but he said even more important to that was the choice of the scientist to work on something important. Because Hammond had the access to the full array of disciplines there at Bell Laboratories, 
He talked about how much he loved eating lunch in the cafeteria with all of these great minds as they would bring their trays to the table. And of course, as happens in almost every cafeteria, you group by interest, right? So there was the physicists' table and the engineers' tables and the chemistry tables. And to a person, he would go and ask, what are you working on? And then listen to their response. He spent a great deal of time at the physics table because he'd ask the physicists, what is your research right now? And immediately they'd become animated and talk quite enthusiastically about the problems they were trying to solve in physics. And then he'd ask them, what are the great problems in physics? And sure enough, the work they were doing was directly linked to the great problems in physics. And over the years, he sat there and watched no less than six of his lunchmates wander off to receive Nobel Prizes. And he said, over time, the table became more boring because it was only the people left behind. And so we all got weather alerts on our cell phones. And we're going to look and see whether or not uh, we need to go to the basement or we can safely sit up here. It's a flash flood warning. We're well above ground level. We'll be okay. However, underneath of your pew, there is an orange cushion that is not a flotation device. Once they, you see, you want to even remember the sermon. Once the physics table had become a little dull because all the awardees went off to better offers, Hamming moved to the chemistry table. And so he asked the chemist over lunch, what are you working on? And the chemist said, well, we're kind of looking at this, and we're trying to deal with this, and we're trying to answer that. And he said, well, what are the big problems in chemistry? And the table became animated and excited. They began to talk about all of the great problems to be solved in chemistry. And Hamming pointed out that there was no relationship between these big problems of their discipline and the research they were doing. He said, you have almost limitless resources, complete freedom. Why aren't you trying to solve the problems that are big in your discipline? Hemming points out in the years that he was Bell Labs, there was not a single Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. No one was named the chair of a department of a prestigious research enterprise. That somehow the chemists were limited because they were asking small questions and solving trivial problems. So Hammett, in his lecture, You and Your Research, said if you are addressing problems that aren't big, you may be wasting your time. What are the big problems you need to solve? And how is the work of your life addressing those problems? Bell Labs only received one Nobel Prize in chemistry, and that was a full 25 years after Hamming had retired. He suggests that those who excel are the ones that work on important problems. So, consider the question. What are the important problems in your life? What are the important 
problems in your life. And what are the problems you spend your day trying to solve? Where are we placing our energy, our resources, our time? Well, none of us have the complete freedom afforded the great minds in a research lab. We do have some choices. We do have some discretionary time. We have a little discretionary energy and maybe even a few dollars of discretionary spending. And for each of us, I think Hammond's question has great relevance. Why aren't we using what we have to solve our greatest problems? Why do we allow ourselves to be sucked into the trivial pursuits and leave the important things unaddressed? When Paul writes to the church of Rome, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so you obey their desires, it unfolds that we quickly reduce the issues of unrighteousness, when Paul uses that word, to sin's dominion over narrow and I would suggest trivial dilemmas. We think, ah, Paul's talking about sin, so he must be talking about lust or lying or stealing or debauchery. And to a certain extent, we're right. Paul is speaking about those things. And those things are certainly unrighteousness. But to conclude that the checklist of boxes for our faithfulness are limited to things like not killing one any today, anybody today, or being faithful to my partner all week long, or not laughing at a racist joke, or returning the grocery cart to the cart corral in the Jewel parking lot, I suggest we've grossly underestimated the limitless resources of God's great grace. We're like chemists at Bell Labs faithfully plugging away at our little projects, but leaving the big concerns, the real issues, unaddressed. Like, is this the same alarm, or is this a tornado? We don't know. But we have a cell phone. We can find out real fast. The point of a, of a research laboratory, the big corporate research laboratories, places like the Femery Institute, or Argonne National Laboratories, or Bell Laboratories, was to allow great minds to have the space and the safety to fail. It was expected that they would try things that no one had tried before. To experiment with things that no one had done before. And if it didn't work out, they didn't have to worry. They still had a job tomorrow where they could start again with some other expression of the great questions. You can come back and work on a project even if your expectations and research doesn't work out. And that, I would suggest for us, is the purpose of God's great grace. We have the safety to work on the important stuff. And if we don't solve it today, that's okay. God's grace allows us to consider it again tomorrow. That God's love, God's steadfast love, as the psalmist wrote, remains intact and gives to us the license, the freedom, the resources 
to try it again tomorrow. So, where we are is working on the little stuff. Why aren't we working to connect the dots between what we are doing and what we believe is truly important? Now, I realize few of us are given the freedom of a research fellow <laughs> in a grand research facility to spend all of our time pursuing whatever is our interest or concern. Not everybody has the job flexibility to pursue great ideas. And I recognize, by the way, that I'm blessed to be in one of those weird jobs where among the things that you pay me to do is to think about faithful solutions to big problems. And for that I am most grateful. It is the, the novelty of being able to be in ministry. But all of us have some corner of discretionary time and energy to address important things, real problems that confront us. And I must confess, even given the magnificent freedom of my job, it's far too easy for me to become mired in the minutia of little things. I can spend a whole week here at FPCLG getting the Wi-Fi tuned just right. Is everybody's Wi-Fi good? Because evidently that matters to me, right? So Paul's challenge to me, and I hope to you as well, is to, as Paul writes, no longer present myself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Or to read another way, no longer continue to spend all of my time on trivia, but to present myself unto God who has been brought from death to life and present myself as an instrument of righteousness, which is to present myself as one who is willing to deal with big problems. I selected the psalm from our lectionary today to be read because I believe it offers to us a little discipline that will help us have the courage to take on big problems. Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezrite. Now we think all the psalms were written by David. That's not true. This one was written by Ethan the Ezrite. Who? Yeah, never heard of him. Neither had I. I know you've not heard of him, and that's okay. Not every physicist at Bell Labs won a Nobel Prize. But that didn't mean they weren't working on great things. And we remember King David, but Ethan did successfully get one of his poems published so that we would read it on a Sunday morning more than 3,000 years after he died. What was his secret? What was his sense of faithfulness? Well, he wrote it right there in Psalm 89. How does he spend his time? I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. The key to Ethan's life work was his consistent praise to the one who funded, designed, and protected the research lab that was his life. The key for Ethan was to continue to remind himself that God's love would sustain him through mistakes, through risk. 
When I recall the steadfast love of God's protection, the grace that allows us to make mistakes, to fail and still arise tomorrow and keep going, why would we spend our time working on trivial problems? A few other times Ethan is mentioned in the Bible, by the way. His name plays off the fact that Ethan means optimist. Ethan means optimist. He's remembered for his optimism, his resilience in the face of adversity. Why? Because when things got tough and problems were hard, Ethan recalled the steadfast love of God, and that got him up in the morning to try again. Two last parallels in which I'm going to compare the Christian life to a research lab. I promise you next week that I will not use a math or science metaphor uh, for those of you who don't like math and science. I'll do something else next week. Um, I don't know, maybe it will be tennis because the French Open is starting. First, one of the reasons for a research lab is the freedom for the participants to work on different problems. In fact, the point of the research lab for Bell Labs was the Bell Laboratories, when they were busy with their monopoly-making telephones, didn't want the corporate need to suppress the research opportunity. We're not going to hand you problems to solve. We're going to let you figure out what problems you'd like to solve. And the research lab was abuzz with a variety of problem-solving activities. My big problem is not necessarily your big problem. And what you feel God is calling you to address, to solve, to wrestle with, to tinker with, is not going to be the same thing that I have been called to tinker and solve. We all have the resources of the same great God, but we've also been given the joyous individuality of saying, this is important to me. The second advantage of the Research Institute is exactly what happened in the cafeteria. That all of the socially inept science nerds were able to take their little trays and sit down at the lunch table and talk with each other about what mattered to them. Consider for a congregation the metaphor of a research lab. Every week we come together, we sing a few corporate songs, we recite a few verses of our binding book, you listen to a dull lecture by one of the administrators, and then you break up to take your trays and talk to one another about the big ideas that matter to you, the problems you're trying to solve. You go out with a little lemonade and some cookies and ask the question, what are you struggling with? What's captured your imagination? Where do you spend your time and how can what I am learning help you in what you are discovering and how can your work inspire me that was the premise of Hamming's observation as he looked at the physicists and the chemists he says when he got bored with the chemists he moved on to the engineers I believe that's how we are called to exchange the knowledge of God's resources and grace. Or as the psalmist, good old optimist Ethan, wrote, happy, happy are those who know the festal shout, 
who walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. They exalt in your name all day long and extol your righteousness. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor their horn is exalted. Our shield belongs to God, our King, the Holy One. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join with me in the affirmation of faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, 